Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On this episode of Squawk 7000, we talk with Laura Russell, a trailblazing pilot with Aer Lingus who will compete at the World Aerobatics Championships in Las Vegas this October. Hailing from Cork, Laura's impressive resume boasts a range of titles, including airline pilot, upside-down pilot, her words, physicist, web designer, and powerlifter. In this energy-filled, thought-provoking episode, Laura shares with us her journeys and how she's excelled in such varied fields. From the cockpit of a commercial airplane to studying the complexities of quantum physics, Laura's passion for learning and pushing herself to new limits is positively inspiring. As we chat with her from her home in Monkstown, we get a glimpse into her preparations for the upcoming championship and the challenges that lie ahead. Join us as we delve into the extraordinary life of Laura Russell, a shining example of determination and excellence in an ever-changing world. In October of this year, I'm going to be traveling to Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm going to be competing in the World Advanced Aerobatic Championships. And um, in doing so, I will be the first Irish female pilot to compete on the world stage. How do you get to a position whereby you can enter this event? It's, it's a long a long story and a long journey. I've been doing aerobatics since probably 2006 is when I first logged an aerobatic flight. And um, it was very much an aerobatic joyride, which I immediately fell in love with. Started trying to do competition aerobatics regularly. So over the years, um, got more and more into it. Competed in my first competition in 2009 in the UK. I remember very vividly coming second. And they gave me a Mars bar. For For the journey home. It tasted really, really good. (laughs) I was going to say, did you not frame it and hold on to it forever? I actually still have the wrapper. I must, I must frame it. I will frame it, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm actually renovating my cottage at the moment, so nothing is getting hog on the wall if I can help it. If you can help it, I know. Do you know, yeah. what I, I suppose, you know, we've already, we've started the topic and we're talking about aerobatics. And, and for the, the man or woman on the street, aerobatics they might see if they go to an air show. And I suppose what I wanted to do was just initially create that distinction between an air show display and a competition display. Yeah, that's a great question because often uh, our only exposure as um, as flyers and as the general public to aerobatic flying is the stunt flying that you see at an air display. Th- th- there is a couple of very uh, important differences. The first thing, of course, is that it is a sport, so it's competitive and it is judged by a group of judges sitting on the ground watching you do your performance. The other thing is with competition aerobatics, 
you are being judged on your precision and accuracy and how closely that you can fly each maneuver as it is drawn in aerobatic notation on a piece of paper. So you need to be drawing, drawing shapes in the sky as geometrically perfectly as possible. Using what, physics to do that? Uh, physics and uh, all sorts of magic, no one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, you know what? Like there's definitely other sports like it in terms of it being mentally very challenging, physically very challenging. Um, and uh, very similar to, I suppose, air displays, there's 90% of the preparation is done on the ground. You very often will see pilots um, on the ground, particularly if they're going to formate, uh, fly in formation or indeed is even they're practicing, they, they almost hand fly it. Yes, the hand flying, the, the crazy aerobatic dance, you will see plenty of air, air show pilots doing that and aerobatic competition pilots will do that just as much, if not even more. And uh, everyone has their own unique style of doing it. Like it's a very personal thing. Some people look like ballerinas when they're doing it. Some people look a bit agricultural and it's often very funny to watch. And they plod around um, as they do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. usually making, uh, like there's a few guys that I fly with regularly in the UK and they grunt and groan and <laughs> <laughs> pretend that they're pulling G while they're doing it. But you know yeah. what? It's all, yeah. it's all to sort of simulate the uh, sensations of the flight that you are now going to go and do to make it as realistic as possible. I thought it would be interesting for us to maybe dispel some of the myths around it as a support as a sport, because there would be an idea that there's an element of risk attached to it. Um, and I think you probably would counter that with the fact it's about safety. Absolutely. Goodness, I, I think if you ask any aerobatic pilot about their sport, they will uh, give you the impression that we're obsessed with safety. You know, we're so risk averse. And I all, always kind of make the parallel between like in my day job, I'm a commercial pilot and I have the luxury of having a um, planning department to create a flight plan for me. Um, we have automated weather um, filtered into that flight plan for us. The fuel planners do all their maths. Uh, we have load masters who's lo who load up the aircraft for us. So there's a whole you know, swathe of, of people working on our behalf to launch us into the air on a commercial flight. But if you're an aerobatic pilot doing one of these competition flights, it's all about you. The bulk rests with you and you have to be responsible for your safety and the aircraft safety. So, yeah, we're all a little obsessed with safety and um, we go to great measures, I think, to finesse just even the littlest details uh, about our aircraft and even down to the clothing that we wear. Like, you know, some of us are quite paranoid about wearing, for example, shoelaces <laughs> in the plane, lest they untie and get tangled up and so on and so on. So or snag on yeah, something, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they're all very practical things, you know. Do you talk to your airplane? Yes. Yes, I do. I talk to myself. No, that, and my that too, yeah, yeah. I usually give out to myself and I usually compliment the airplane. He or she? Ooh, okay. So uh, I fly definitely one female. Definitely one male, and the other is a question mark. There you go. You're not the first part because I've I've spoken to somebody else who who flies a cub and refers to her in very elegant terms for her age and what it is she does, and sometimes the fact that she can even decide to go off and do something herself. If she decides she's not turning right one day, that's it. You're yes, yeah. And now we have the the, the picture built up that this is a sport. It is highly built on precision. I suppose one yeah. other thing that we'll put into the mix, and and then we'll explore it a little bit further is how your mental state uh, in, the, in, the, in the display is, is as much 
part of it as the physical exertions that you have. So what, where is your head, in other words, during a display? So when I'm flying well, I don't think anything exists outside that one kilometer, you know, cubed performance zone. It's, it's just me in that box, you know, me in the airplane. And I, 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 like, it's like you have a heightened sense of, of noise, of smell, of taste, of, of sight, of hearing. And your mental state, God, it's so important, you know, if you want to have a successful flight. And I suppose the key to that is having your mental prep done on the ground. Uh, what I often find, if, if I have a very good flight and I know I'm flying well, it's almost a cascade. The flight gets better and better and better. By the end of it, you know, the adrenaline is chomping at the bit. You are absolutely overcome with emotion, you know, positive emotion. And I find it's a funny thing, but if you fly well, it's very hard to shake it out of your hands and, and come in and just land. You want to be up there for another five minutes, kind of, kind of whooping and rolling. And <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, and then of course the other side of it is when you when you know you've made a mistake, which happens all the time, to try and overcome that that sort of blip. Mm. It's very challenging. You have to have kind of methodologies to to push past that and to regather yeah. yourself, yeah. recenter, breathe, and and get back into it and not do a really angry landing afterwards as mm. well. That's, yeah, but I mean, that, that nearly advice that any pilot would take, you know, is that, that, oh, that they yeah, kick if, yeah. if, if it, if yeah. recover and, and get yourself back on track with it. At the risk of, 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 you know, giving you the wrong metaphor, but if this were a dance and you and the airplane, I presume, are the partners, how does that dance pro- progress? Is it choreographed, in other words? Do you write the display with, with an, an image in your mind? With this sport, actually, the rules are very rigorous in what you're flying. This year, SIVA, they're the international committee who decide upon or vote upon five compulsory aerobatic maneuvers that you have to fly during this aerobatic season at competitions. Five of them are known, and then you add five unknown figures yourself, which you create. So we all uh, have our own personal known sequence to fly. So 10 figures in total. That is extremely choreographed uh, to answer your question, especially because that's the one sequence that you have some control over and you can design for your aircraft. So if I, for example, the first competition of the year, I still have a question mark over I'm fly- whether I'm flying an extra 200 or an extra 300 um, or 330. Uh, there's a big horsepower difference. There's uh, quite a difference in center of gravity and aileron setup. So I know that one of my known sequences will absolutely work very well, but the other one, I might be running it out of energy ever so slightly, and that's a consideration. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pre-planning in, in the choreography of that. And then on the day itself, if you're going up to fly, of course, you need to know exactly what the wind is doing at every altitude that you're going to be flying at, and then you have to somehow compensate for it. So it looks like there's no wind whatsoever for your competition flight for the judges. Describe the box to me. What space do you have to perform in? Um, so the box apparently is one kilometre wide, long and deep, but it is awfully, awfully small when you do go up there. Um, usually you can fit approximately two aerobatic figures in before you need to reverse your direction. So, for example, just to go back to basics, um, a lot of the beginner sequences will have one loop and then a stall turn which will invariably reverse your direction to come back the other way. And then you might launch into a Cuban 8 
and then back into a Humpty bump to reverse your direction again, maybe with a roll on the way down or something like that. And the fact that you're kind of doing anywhere between 100 or 180 knots means you hoover up that box very quickly. Add in a tailwind and you could be through it in seven seconds. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. And there's a penalty, I presume, if you uh, go outside the box or exceed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Unfortunately, you, there is. Yeah. <laughs> which you don't want to be in. Yeah. Um, oh, no. I noticed that you, you know, you used a couple of terms there. And, you know, uh, as, as somebody with uh, even a basic interest in aviation might have been hanging on there for what, you know, what the loop was, etc. I suppose everybody listening to us has heard the notion that a lot of these you know, procedures started with World War One flying or at least the flying aces. It, it, that's too simplistic, I think, an idea at this stage. Where, where have they come from and what, what, where, where, who designed them? You're, you're dead right, actually. And uh, do you know what? I'm not too hot on the history of this, mm. e- even though it goes back so many decades now. I mean, they talk about the uh, the Bugger Youngman being the unlimited aircraft of its era. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because if you talk to some of the unlimited guys now, um, what they were flying, let's say, a decade or two decades ago at unlimited now kind of looks like an intermediate sequence. Right. So things have gone up and up and up in complexity. Like some of the uh, unlimited sequences that I've seen from last year are just, I mean, they're bonkers. Describe unlimited bonkers. or expand, expand on that a little bit more, what unlimited it means. So yes, so there's five levels in aerobatics. Three of them are governed by SIBA. So they're the international standard. That's intermediate, advanced and unlimited. Unlimited being the top level. Yeah. So you will go from beginners, which would be, you know, something like loop, roll, stall turn, cubinate, reverse cubinate, so on, so on, all the way up to, you know, a figure you might have at at unlimited might be some sort of double humpty bump with three half rolls on the way up, a snap roll on the way, a negative snap rolls on the way down, um, and then... You might finish that maneuver and go into an inverted spin with, you know, one and a quarter turn and then a quarter roll afterwards. So it's just, I think when you look at an unlimited sequence visually, it looks extremely complex. Um, And you get the sense that timing is extremely important, but also that the airplane you should be flying it in needs to be up to the job. And then I suppose in, in the middle of all of that, the limitations are going to be the aircraft and the pilot. Like what can your body take? <laughs> Thankfully, our bodies are pretty good at it once we keep practicing. Mm. Certainly at advanced and unlimited, if you're flying, you know, one of the fairly standard uh, carbon monoplanes, as we all do now mm-hmm. at those levels, you know, things like plus eight, plus nine G are not uncommon. And then negative, negative is a bit, well, you you fly negative three, four, five G certainly, um, but it takes a little bit longer to get used to the, the negative Gs to build up the tolerance for that. But but those figures are certainly not unknown at all at um, advanced and unlimited. Yeah. All right, let's go back a little bit then, we've because we we we're here already. We're we're in negative G and we're at advanced level. And I'm thinking <laughs> about how you got into this in the first place. Uh, is your okay. grandmother to blame? Did I hear that? Oh yeah, my grandmother is absolutely to blame. I think I got her thrill seeker genes or something. <laughs> One of my earliest memories of her was we're down at like a fun fair in Kinsale in County Cork, which yeah. is where we're from. I remember having an absolute panic because we, she I don't know what age I was. I was very, very young, like yeah. but she managed to get me onto one of these swinging boats. Yes. That you that you propel yourself. I mean, I was too young to propel myself, so she did all the work, but 
I distinctly remember her trying to actually do a loop in it, like actually invert the thing. <laughs> and I just think that that must have set the seed, even though I was terrified, it must have stuck in my brain or something. Because, uh. yeah, there was plenty of examples of that. She, like when we were younger, when me and my brother were younger, she used, she used to be the one who was ordering the bouncing castle for our birthday parties. Like. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 She yeah. would be on it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So she, she bought me my first flying lesson. Oh, right. Okay. Where was that? Uh, it was in Cork Airport. So I was 18 at the time. I just started a degree in physics in UCC. Mm-hmm. And I had spent that that previous summer after my leaving search. Basically, uh, like just enjoying the summer days. It was a beautiful summer. And I remember at one, just one random day looking up, seeing one of the uh, flying schools, Cherokees mm-hmm. flying over and just thinking, God, wouldn't it be amazing to learn to fly? I guess at that age as well, I mean, you're mad into learning new things and changing. Yeah. I mean, everything is a big change after after the leaving search, you know. I think she got hold of that notion. She was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy her a flying lesson. That was that. Um, now, unfortunately, she actually, she got sick uh, very quickly um, that autumn and uh, she passed away uh, the 28th of December 2004, so a few days after Christmas. But by then I had taken that first lesson, which she told every single doctor and nurse about in, in the hospital really? that Lovely. particular yeah, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, 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 the rest is history, yeah. Mm. You say the rest is history, but let's step through it a little bit because, uh, you know, there's a big jump between... Yeah, getting your first flying lesson and then heading to the world championships. So okay. uh, I've never, we haven't even talked about the day job yet for a moment, but you're, you're studying <laughs> physics. Okay. Yes. And you're getting a bit of flying in. Um, and do you remember your first solo, for example? Oh yeah, I do. Oh my goodness. So, so I first started flying lessons in South Air as it was at the time. They had the two Cherokees down there. Um, I'm sure half of Ireland has flown Oscar Zulu and Golf Papa at this stage, but they were, they were the two that I started in. And sure, I was a broke college student. Goodness, I hadn't a euro night, you know. So I used to scrimp and save. I used to do a little bit of web design on the side um, oh, right. and all the summer jobs I could take. And I used to, I remember very clearly actually, like running up between lectures on a Wednesday to the airport to try and fit in a 30-minute lesson. Like, so it was slow. It was a slow process. And of course, the Irish weather as well didn't help, you know, mm. everyone. I'm sure any any flyer listening to this will, will appreciate that. So I eventually, I ended up going around the corner from South Air to Atlantic Air, as they were called at the time, because I couldn't get a regular flying slot in South Air. It was so busy. I think it was like 120 euro for an hour in the, oh, in the yeah. aircraft back yeah. then, yeah. So I, I started hassling the school next door. Would they let me go flying? And um, at the time, Atlantic Air uh, had one Cessna. Delta Delta X-ray, and I think Charlie by Tango, one twin, and maybe four instructors. So I started um, flying with them. I was very mature. I decided I would save my money for about, I don't know, you know, six months in the run-up to summer of 2006 and just hammer through the rest of the course. And that's kind of what I did. So I kind of, I went solo, um, I guess it was the autumn prior, and then I plodded along a little bit and then just went hell for leather summer 2006 and then got my PPL uh, I think it was October 2006 yeah the day of your solo was it at Cork did you do a circuit did they stop traffic for you (laughs) no thank god (laughs) it was very it was very civilised yeah the guys let me off in one of the 172s and um, god I remember it was so easy to taxi Mm. the aircraft without 
the instructors sat beside me. That was every, <laughs> everyone talks about the climb rate, but no, yeah, no the taxi one for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, wow, this airplane is so nimble now. Um, <laughs> three circuits, three circuits. And then I said, oh, I better land. <laughs> I suppose what I was heading for there was that there you were for the first time on your own in the aircraft. And uh, you described earlier on about that idea of just being you and in that moment in time when you're doing the aerobatics. Uh, and I'm wondering, was, there, was that sort of the first bit that meant that you said, I have to do this and I have to do more of it? I think the I have to do this and I have to do more of it hit me on my very first flight. I was besotted from from day one. Like, I don't know, like I, I struggle to kind of describe the feeling that flying gives me. And I'm sure everyone will will empathize with this. Anyone who flies and loves it gets it, you know. It's hard to put English words to it because it is a very special thing. And and for me, uh, sometimes I end up going back to the platitudes, oh, the ultimate freedom of it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But actually, it's that sense of mastery of a skill. I remember that intro flight that I did first day um, in 2004. And I just remember watching the instructor and going, God, like, look at look at how he's compensating for the wind, for the kind of the lumps and bumps, the turbulence. He's managing the speed, even though I know a sense of, you know, you know, an airspeed indicator or whatever. Mm. But he just had complete control. And that, to me, was very inspiring. Watching something. Uh, I've heard people describe it as uh, as well as a kind of a sense of a coherence. And I know that's even yeah. an engineering phrase, but that you're you're kind of you're in the zone maybe more than yes. you might be. Yeah. You went on to do a, P- a PhD in physics. I got the PPL when I was in third year physics. Graduated then the next year. Obviously, still a broke college student. <laughs> if you turn, tell me, at least aged money, I'd be surprised. But yes, I know. Oh, no. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm just, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's the destiny of anyone interested in aviation. I think at the time, yeah, like the commercial career was years off, so mm. I knew I had to build my hours anyway, and. I already had the beginning interest in aerobatics, so I knew it was going to be an expensive road no matter what. But I I ended up winning a a scholarship to do a PhD in um, quantum physics. Wow. It would, it's kind of the natural progression after you do a degree in physics. Okay, there was a good few people in my class went into industry and so on, but it allowed me to kind of further an interest that I had in some of the, the stuff that I studied in my degree. And I thought, it's perfect. I can remain in Cork. I can keep flying here come out with a third, you know, a postgraduate degree, which will always stand to be anyway, yeah. no matter what yeah. I'm doing, you know? So that's what I did. And that, that took kind of from day one to, you know, the day I defended my thesis five years. Would you have had to do original research for that? Yes. Yes. So mine was experimental. The way my thesis is constructed was each chapter was a peer reviewed publication, essentially, mm. um, kind of re-sculpted into a thesis type format. From there to where you were the other day, Driving an Airbus. <laughs> How did that happen? Okay, so I defended my PhD. I was so sick of a laboratory, I never wanted to see the inside one of one again. Uh, so I decided, right, I will apply for the Aer Lingus Cadetship, which had just opened up. Wow. And uh, meanwhile, I just, I, I, um, I was interviewing for like engineering jobs. I just wanted normality for mm. a while, if you like, mm. you know. And uh, I ended up getting a job very quickly, actually. It was, I had an interview two weeks after my PhD defense, and they rang me on the way home to, to offer me the job. It was a, an engineering company up in Galway called Vallejo. And they, uh, I mean, their overall mission and value is towards automated driving and so on. So they hired me as um, like an optical engineer. So I was designing the lenses that you would see on um, surround view car systems, if you like. Yeah. Right. yeah, I remained in that role for two and a half years. 
obviously flying every single weekend. In during those two years, I actually it became apparent to me after one year of it that I wasn't happy and I really, really, really want to be a commercial pilot. Mm. So I I decided that's it. I'm going to do the ATPL exams, which I did with AFTA, as they're now called, in mm-hmm. in, our, in, in uh, court, distance learning, put myself through that and um, did the flight instructor cert with them as well, which was absolutely brilliant. So I used to drive up and down every weekend from Galway uh, to do my little bit of flight instructor uh, syllabus stuff with uh, AFTA in Cork. In the meantime, I had applied for Aer Lingus every single year. And every single year they said no. <laughs> Until finally they didn't. They let me in. I, I'm thinking about the, the interview with, uh, a, you know, a panel uh, talking to Dr. Russell uh, about her career in aviation. And, uh, you know, that awful phrase that sometimes you hear people say somebody being overqualified. I mean, how did you convince them? Yeah, actually, that came up. They asked me and they said, will you not be bored in an airbus every day? This is, again, where I think the English language a language fails me a little bit. I actually find every day in the Airbus very exciting because it's never the same. Yeah. Like every day when I was going to work in, in Galway and to an extent in my PhD, like it was always the same stuff. I switch on the same boxes, mm-hmm. switch on the computer, switch on the laser, do my thing. My experiment wouldn't work yet again. I would collect some data that didn't mean anything. You know, it was just the same old, same old. Mm-hmm. But I, I go into work every day here. Like like yesterday, I went into work, had um, a couple of double Londons. It's snowing in Cork, even though the TAF was a very short tempo. It snowed for six hours. <laughs> um, we had to de-ice. De-icing is always a trauma in Ireland. We had a slot. There's all sorts of passenger demands going on. It's just, it's just nuts. And to me... It's a very fulfilling job because every day you have loads of little things to sort out and, and run through. And you always go home with a load of things ticked. Like, I, we did this safely. We did this safely. We got there in time. We did it. You know what I mean? So it's it's just a very wholesome job. So, okay, maybe I was overqualified for the day-to-day job that I'm doing now. However, having a degree and a PhD really stood to me um, when I did the integrated training um, down in Spain for Erlingus, you know. Because that's quite an intensive course. And the process of study w- was there for you as well. I yeah. suppose people might be curious as well about the, you know, you're in an extra, you're in an Airbus. Can you even compare them? I mean, okay, they've got no. wings and they've got engines, but no, you, you can't. No, no, no. And people ask me, do, yeah. do you not get bored of work because you fly upside down the weekend? No, no, they're so, so different. Mm. So different. I would never get confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, you I know. do have to reassure people that I'm not going to do anything in the Airbus. <laughs> We'll be doing a stall turn to get in the next slot. No, it's not going to happen. No, no. Yeah, yeah. wouldn't let you probably anyway. The same way. No, it would be my last day of work. I suspect. Yeah, if I did. I, I, it probably would. And we continue our conversation with Laura Russell after this short break. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, you know, if you look at, at, at the story where you are, uh, you are absolutely up to your neck in flying. And I suppose the obvious part of it is to say, right, I've been doing this. I've been practicing. Um, how does practice work for you, by the way? Because uh, do we have the aircraft here? Do we have the, the infrastructure to support aerobatics uh, to world championship level? Uh, we actually, Well, we do have the infrastructure, but unfortunately, um, it's not that popular in Ireland, you know. So, OK, going back a bit, when I first, so I, I took an aerobatic joyride back in the day. That, mm. That's what I um you know, that was my kind of intro flight to it, and I absolutely adored it. At the time, I think the only person with a two-seat machine of that caliber in Ireland was Eddie Goggins. So yes. I, I started doing yeah. a bit with him. Yeah, yeah we space to kill rush at the time. So I remember God I'm really like I six hour drive to fly half an hour with him, like in the the three hundred L. I don't know how many hours I did with him at the beginning, but like he was so patient and he's an excellent instructor. Mm. Uh, I learned all the fundamentals from him. Just the, the basic stuff that you need to know if you're going into competition flying. And then move on a few years, he sold it and I had by then competed in the UK. And in England, they really, really kind of value aviation and sort of preserve it, do, they do their absolute best to preserve it. And I found a very welcoming environment over there. Plenty of people had aircraft of that caliber that were happy to, you know, to rent out and to get young people into aerobatic flying and so on. So I found very easily that I made lots of friends in England. And um, there was a few guys that I used to go over 
very irregularly due to finances, obviously. Um, but I would go over to them and, and fly with them and um, try and keep my training going. So I suppose if you look at Ireland now, obviously Eddie um, and uh, Alan, the guys there, they still have the, the CAP 232. Irish Historic Flight obviously do some beautiful stuff as well, but it's not a competition aerobatics. Mm, mm. And of course, Dave Bruton has the beautiful Sukhoi in the Midlands as well, but that's kind of it. Do you have to own your own aeroplane for aerobatics? I mean, no is the answer. I suppose the proof is that, you know, I, I've been able to rent for the last five years and get on quite well. Okay, if I won the lottery tomorrow, of course, I would go straight out and buy an extra 330 SE. You've, but, you've the colour picked already. Oh, yeah. I have the whole scheme sorted. No, but but in all practicality, like renting one of these aircraft is probably a more mm. sensible way to go for the moment. Yeah. Um, the other thing that strikes me as well is, uh, for, for me personally anyway, like because I've been going to the UK to do this for so long now, if I had my own aircraft in Ireland, I'd actually miss out going over there. I, I You know, I have a lot of friends, a lot of camaraderie. Um, I instruct over there. You know, I would miss that. Mm. Uh, there's no, I mean, there's no aerobatic instruction in Ireland. So I, I, I instruct aeros in, 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 in England, you know. Mm. Yeah, and I'd really, really miss out on that. Yeah. Actually, there's an interesting one just to get your perspective on the extent to which uh, a private pilot in training, uh, what they need to know to keep safe. That's a great one. I have to admit, I think the PPL syllabus is very skimpy when it comes to handling skills in this regard. Uh, I instruct in Waterford Aero Club as well. And I notice y- you might fly with people who have only done a stall once or twice during the syllabus. And then, you know, mm. once again for the flight test. And goodness, they're very nervous if they're asked to do it again. And a lot of people are nervous. I, you know, I was only reading the other day about the, the preponderance of people to to stall or spin in on, on, on a base leg when they, when they let the speed wash off and, and, and not being aware of what it is they're doing. There's, a, as you say, a little bit of a reluctance to, to it now. There is indeed. I mean, it isn't in the syllabus. It's not mandatory anymore. Topically and politically, advanced CPRT now is, is, is kind of hotly debated mm. as a sort of fix for this. But it's still not mandated, mandated for a private pilot. There's no official course. It's interesting because, like, I hadn't spun at all during my PPL. The first time I did was actually when I went off to get my tailwheel endorsement in Kilkenny was, uh, with uh, lovely Peter Toss, who took me up in the Cetabria. One of the essential items that we had to do, you know, for my side off was spinning. That was the first time I seen it. You're dead right, there's a reluctance. And it's it's a sort of a skill that's getting lost over time because now we have loads of instructors who haven't uh, done any spin except that one during the flight instructor course. We we're flying a lot of airplanes that might be approved to spin, but are very difficult to put in a spin. Like you could spin, like, you know, we spin the, the 172s in, in Waterford because they're approved to do so. But I mean, they're not a great example of a spinning airplane, you know, <laughs> you have to work quite hard to mm. put them in. Yeah. And if you even think about recovering, they stop, they can read your mind, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As again, something that, that needs the skill around it. As we're heading towards the World Championships, there's a couple of practicalities I want to go through with you. First of all, you'll be heading to Las Vegas. What yes. will you be flying? What, what's that process involved for you? And are you looking forward to it? Oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Yeah, there's a lot of logistics, as you might imagine. The competition itself is going to be taking place about 20 minutes south of Las Vegas in an airfield called Gene. So I think people's expectation of, you know, an 
air show in Las Vegas is bright lights and mm. amazing. Mm. But actually, in reality, it'll probably be out in somewhere that resembles a desert <laughs> and um, nothing much else around. <laughs> yeah, so it'll be taking place in October uh, through November. The aircraft that I'm renting is an American registered 330LX, as you might imagine. The, air, the aircraft rental situation is... Um, <laughs> quite uh, interesting. They yeah. are pretty much naming their price, and we I have bet. to pay it, kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and also for you as a pilot, I mean, it's pro- you probably do it every day at work, but you're getting into an aeroplane that you may not have necessarily flown before. The actual Correct. reg, I mean, rather than the aircraft type. Yeah, because they're exactly. all different in the end, I suppose. They are. I mean, okay, it is an extra, and uh, you know, there is a you know, when you get into one extra, they're all basically the same, uh, but. Yeah, it'll be, mm-hmm. it'll still be a different environment. Um, uh, one thing that I always have to consider, because I am very vertically challenged, is that I will more than likely be flying, uh, sharing this aircraft with um, pilots who are much taller than me. So there's going to be um, quite a bit of prep for myself to get the seat set up, you know, for, you know, ease of controls, blah, 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 you know. Are you sitting you know. on a parachute? I have my own parachute. I don't, it's um, a neat little backpack. I actually bought my own a few years ago. I got a custom made so it actually fits me because most of the parachutes you find at schools and clubs and so on are absolutely enormous. They're built for six foot uh, pilots, All right. which don't, don't fit me very well. <laughs> Laura, I want to uh, broach the somewhat embarrassing subject that we always have in Ireland. The money. It's going to cost. Ooh. What are you, what are you doing? Are you raising funds? Are you getting sponsorship? What's the plan? So I am actively looking for sponsorship. Um, yeah, it's it's daunting when you start looking at the money. You know, the day you start adding up your logbook, mm. you, you shouldn't be flying anymore. <laughs> what does it cost you so far, exactly? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah. Um, but you know what? Okay, it, yeah, it's pl- it's plenty of money, you know. You know, on a personal level, I'm supposed to be renovating this house, but I mean, I'm just putting that on hold. I mean... <laughs> Yes. I mean, you can't you can't fly a house. So, like, you know. Also, I, I just after the last couple of years of lockdown, like, it's become very yeah. apparent to me and probably loads of people that life is very short. And I just have this deep fear of being eighty years old or ninety years old or however long I lived, and looking back and kind of going, "God, why didn't I do that?" Mm. That thought disturbs me, and I would hate that to happen. So oh, I'm going to go for it. It's, yeah. a, it's a good philosophy. Um, and what can you offer the sponsors? Okay, so um, obviously, you know, the issue is that I've got a rented aircraft and the owner might be, not be too happy with sticking stickers and mm-hmm. logos all over it. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm offering sponsors basically advertising space on me. I think of me as a surface for your logo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, obviously, you know, decorate uh, my flight suit and my t-shirts, however you mm-hmm. like kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I suppose also, though, you know, just... Okay, aside from the, the dirty business of money and advertising, I know, I know. it's actually, it's a lovely, do you know what? It's a lovely little way of getting in on, you know, some Irish history in the mm. making. All right. I mean, I have to manage people's expectations. I'm not going to set the world alight entering this competition. I'm, I'm up against teams with government funding. Yes, but you're going to be there. That's the thing. Uh, yeah. But exactly. Yeah. So yeah. once I take part for me, that's, it's going to be a win. Mm. So I'm, I'm aiming for last place, but I don't care because I'm going to be there. And by being there, I'm going to be the first Irish female to do so, which is absolutely wonderful. Mm. And it would just be really nice um, to have a few people, a few companies kind of recognize that and promote it. And also, let's face it, at the end of the day, all of these pursuits are so worthwhile. If it gets people into things, 
and going mm-hmm. after stuff that they're interested in, you know. That's what it's all about. Like, Well, you've identified that void that we seem to have here, even amongst the flying population, towards aerobatics, which, yeah. you know, and yeah. I can see you might be on a bit of a mission for that as well. It'd be a bad influence. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's what you want. Um, I suppose just to, to, to bring our conversation to, to a close and... I do really think we'd love to talk to you again before you head away just to see how the sure. prep's going because we haven't talked about what you plan for the, the, the five versus the five. But um, sometimes it's nice to talk to pilots about memorable moments. We talked about your, your first solo, but I'm curious about your, your memorable aerobatics moment. Is there one that, that oh. pops into your head? Um, goodness, that's like asking somebody what's their favourite song. <laughs> it's very hard actually to, to choose just one, especially for aerobatic flying. I think Anytime I'm upside down in an airplane is a pretty special um, occasion. I could go right back actually to near the beginning of the aerobatics. Do you know what? The first time I did a solo aerobatic competition is probably a very memorable milestone for any aerobatic pilot. It was in 2010 and I think it was in Leicester and uh, I had uh, gotten solo in the extra 200 that year. And um, I went off to my very first competition all on my own. And uh, yeah, it's it's daunting and thrilling and exciting. But I remember very well that it was a beautiful summer's day because it was, I think it was August time. There was quite a, a good few competitors and a lot of flights to get through. So they decided to operate like an airborne hold. So basically the, the pilot ahead of you would be doing their thing in the performance box and you'd be uh, orbiting um, at a safe distance in the air, ready to go in and do your thing. And I just remember this moment. Oh, it was absolutely surreal. Uh, I remember orbiting and just catching sight of the pits who was doing their performance ahead of me, pulling up into um, a vertical manoeuvre and just thinking it was the most thrilling thing on earth to be watching uh, this pilot uh, in his yellow pits do his thing while I was getting ready for, for my uh, my performance. And it was, yeah, I got goosebumps. It was absolutely incredible. So yeah, that was one of the early kind of aerobatic uh, exhilarating moments. And maybe this is cheating. This isn't an aerobatic kind of memory. But last October, I had the privilege and responsibility of taking my bum for a spin in an extra 200, which was a really nice, I suppose, a milestone as an instructor, as an aerobatic pilot uh, and as a daughter. <laughs> um, I, uh, I took her over to, to England. We were over there for the weekend anyway, and um, the weather came together. I had the aircraft free. So we went to Felmere to the British Aerobatic Academy. That's where I instruct. That's where I teach. and That's where I, I train for the aerobatics myself. We went for a very fast, loud joyride around Cambridgeshire. She actually lived there when she was younger, so it was really nice for her to see it from the air. We didn't do anything too wild because um, <laughs> it was her first time in, in an extra. But hearing her give a whoop of joy on takeoff. Yeah, like there's no better endorsement than that, is there? <laughs> well, what our, our audience can see is how your whole face changed during that story. Uh, no, it was beautiful uh, to see the fact that you engaged in it so fully and that you'll have that same feeling in, in Las Vegas. Final question for you. Does it matter to you, the sport that you're in and the other people you can you compete with as to whether you're a man or a woman? Oh, no, not at all. Gosh, no. It, it really matters so little to me. And I think, it, it, you know, when I was growing up, like I, I mentioned my nan at the beginning there. Mm. I, my nan, my mum, my aunt, my godmother, and even a couple of friends of my, um, mutual friends of my nan and my mum. These are all just women who went out and did stuff and didn't make a song and dance about it, about the fact that they were female. So I never, ever questioned that stuff. 
And I think it's only in recent years that it's kind of been highlighted. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't occur to me on a daily basis. I just go and, you know, do the things that I enjoy and love and um, don't kind of preoccupy myself with who I am or what I am, you know. Russell, thank you for joining us on Squawk 7000. (laughs) Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.